Welcome to Carrying Wayward, a supernatural podcast for fans who aren't ready to let go and newcomers to the series who are ready to jump in. I'm Marie Vigourou. And I'm Drew Shulman. In this episode, we'll be diving into Supernatural Season 2, Episode 4, Children Shouldn't Play With Dead Things. Let's get this show on the road. Hi everyone. Due to the nature of this episode, we will be discussing domestic violence and violence against women in our Critical Time segment. If you're not in the headspace to listen to this, you may want to skip Critical Time for now, or entirely, that's always up to you. Take care of yourself, that's what matters. Thank you. Okay, can I just start and say I love the title of this episode? Like, it's it's kind of just like, it's like a weird good expression and it's a little bit like wordy to be a title. But it finds the episode really well. It really does. I mean, do you know? Do you know where it's from? No. Okay. Well, let's let's keep that for critical time because I have a little Ooh. something ready for you for that. <laughs> Ooh, fun little bonus. I love that. Are you ready to do your recap? Yes. Let's. Do you want to try doing it in a minute and a half? <gasps> Challenge accepted. All right. Three, two, one. Sam convinces Dean to go to the cemetery where Sam wants to say a goodbye to his mother and also leave his dad's dog tags there, which I think is really cute. And I love that whole moment. But Dean's kind of like, eh, I don't know about this whole thing. It doesn't go anywhere near it. But then stumbles upon a case when he finds a bunch of dead land in a perfect circle around some girl's grave. But we find out from the cold opening that I forgot to mention earlier that this girl had died in a car accident where she drove off the road. She was yelling at her boyfriend who apparently cheated on her. Um, we then decide to go and figure out what this girl's doing. because She's killed somebody and they're like, well, it's probably a ghost. We'll just go salt the bones. And they open the, the casket and there's a whole bunch of nothing in there, but some weird markings. And they think it's the dad bringing her back from the grave, but it's actually her nice guy, air quotes, boyfriend, friend who has raised her from the dead and is now sleeping with her, which is a whole bunch of weird to discuss. And they trick her back into the cemetery, nail her into the coffin and save the day. And then Dean like really like just opens up to Sam emotionally and it's so cathartic and I love it. Time. <laughs> 20 seconds left. Woof. I love how I forgot the cold open. <laughs> that's fine. I mean, I think that's okay. I think that's okay. You, you summarized it very well afterwards. Thank you. Thank you. Is there anything in the long game for this episode that we really need to focus on or that I may have missed? So you didn't forget anything. Um, Always a good feeling. Yeah. <laughs> so, there, you, that, actually, so that's not true. You forgot like, the cold open. <laughs> Right. One. There is a one strike against me. Let's see how long we go. If I hit three strikes, we switch and it's your turn to recap. <gasps> oh my god! <laughs> <laughs> okay, I think uh, we're, go- we're not going to count the strikes, okay? <laughs> I'm okay with that. I just like to tease a little bit. But in the long game, what are the points we need to... <laughs> so where do we have to focus in the long game? Okay. First time we see zombies. Interesting. We are also introduced to Casa Erotica. I will be very intrigued to see if this is, um, I feel like it's just gonna be a running joke. Like it'll just be the, like, kind of like, it'll be like kind of their version of a little gag they can bring up over and over again, I'm guessing. 
Yeah. So something that tends to happen in this show is that they like, they, they, they world build, right? And this is like one of those times where they do that. So Casa Erotica becomes like the porn channel, um, on on supernatural the same way that eventually biggersons becomes the chain restaurant that they hang out at gas and sip etc like those are things that are part of their world i cannot wait until we can get to the episode where the porn channel is important (laughs) another thing is that we hear the phrase what's dead should stay dead twice and both of those times dean actually says it Which is really ironic, frankly, considering that a future motto of Supernatural actually is going to become like nothing ever really dies on Supernatural. Yeah, which is a vibe I've already gotten from the show, given that I do know that we do see John again at least one more time, to my knowledge. I think for now, what we have to keep in mind is that is like Dean's very staunch position on this, that what's dead should stay dead. And we'll talk about that in story time a little bit. And finally, there's a very strong moment of visual foreshadowing when Dean is standing in the middle of the circle of the dead grass in the cemetery, and I got really strong uh, Lazarus Rising vibes. That's season uh, four, episode one. So for those who have seen it, I mean, go back and watch this particular episode because frankly, it's the same camera shot. Like he's in the middle of that dead grass and then the camera just pans down slowly. It's it's actually, it was strange to watch, not gonna lie. <laughs> but with all that wrapped up, let's jump on into story time. Let's. Can we start by talking about Sam and Dean visiting Mary's headstone? Like, so you talked about it in the recap, but like, how did you feel about that? I think it just sort of, again, drives this point home. They've really been riding pretty hard this season. And I think it's probably one of the better versions of it they've done, which is just showing how different people cope with different things. Two very different ways of dealing with it, the same way they both very differently deal with you know, John's passing, or even just how they deal with the grief of those uh, scenes. It's also driving home the point that the boys are very different and that it's coming through in different ways. And in this case, it's how they cope with grief. It's interesting because for me, when I saw it this time around, it was a reminder that grief never really ends, that Sam and Dean are still grieving their mom, even though she passed like over 25 years ago there and they're and they are going to grieve their dad for a very long time you know like I I actually recently came across a really beautiful visual analogy for grief and it's called the box and the ball and the idea that your life is a box and your grief is a ball inside of that box and inside the box there's a pain button and when we're talking about pain we're talking about emotional pain or how I would tend to call it suffering. So when grief is fresh, the ball is very big and it's almost always pressing against the pain button. And then as time goes on, the ball gets a little smaller and smaller and smaller with each day. And it doesn't press the pain button as often anymore. And that's kind of what's happening here, right? The boys aren't usually in like deep, raw emotional pain when they think about their mom. But with their dad's passing, the grief ball definitely hit the pain button. And so they're both grieving in their own way and just trying to make meaning of that, again, both in their very different ways. No, very well put. And I mean, again, I feel like I'm just going to admit this to the audience right now. I don't know what it was, but for some reason it took until nearly the end of the episode. Not to the point where Dean said it at the end, but it took a while 
to really just draw the obvious comparison between the fact that Dean feels like he shouldn't be alive right now. Like, we've kind of always known it, and at the end of the episode, I'm jumping ahead, I know, it's much more clearly stated his feelings about what happened with John and where and how unnatural his being alive is, that a place like a cemetery, the place that he should have ended up and is now choosing to walk into, must be so difficult to process. You're right. I think it's it's very probably something that Dean must be feeling, that this is where he quote unquote, would have been, or in his case, because of all the shame and guilt that he's feeling, he's probably telling himself, this is where I should be. So to be forced to face that because he wants to be there for Sam enough to say, sure, let's go. You know, he's not going to like, you know, Sam offers to like, you know, I'll, you know, drop me off. I'll hitchhike. I'll, I'll make my own way. And he's like, no, you're my brother. I'm going to take care of you. Even if, it, even if it means doing something I really don't want to have to do. Right after that is the moment where the boys like have their first, I want to call it a gentle fight because they're not really fighting in the sense that like, so Sam just sort of tells Dean like to take another swing if it'll help. Like Sam is just so defeated. Like he just looks so sad. He's got like those perfect little like sad, pathetic puppy eyes. And I just want to like hug him so bad. And, and Dean tells him that he's going out for a drink alone. Now, I feel like this is the start of us seeing that Dean uses alcohol to cope with his feelings because last episode, he was able to open up to Gordon while they were drinking. And this episode, he needs to drink in order to calm himself down. And that's also followed by Matt, the ex-boyfriend of Angela, or the boyfriend of Angela, who's watching videos of her while drinking as well and, and mourning her and grieving her. And so I think that there, like you said, there was something very intentional about that. Yeah. And uh, this is even a moment too, because I mean, like I definitely realize that the drinking is definitely part of Dean's coping with things, Dean's, you know, crutch. But did he actually go for a drink or did he lie to Sam? Because isn't that when he goes... Isn't that when he goes to break into uh, Angela's place and meets her roommate? I get, you know what, Drew? Like, you can totally see it that way because the way that it happens is that Dean grabs his jacket and then storms out of the room. Then it cuts to Matt's apartment. And then it goes to Angela's house where Dean breaks into her, into her house to meet her roommate. And then after that, he comes back to the motel. Now, for some reason, I understood that this was happening over like a day or so. Like, I don't know why I was under that impression, but you can totally see it as like he was doing drunk detective work or he just went to break into her house. Like, yeah, I think that there's definitely something to, like, it's not clear. But it does bring up some other points I want to discuss, actually. So let's continue from there. So we do have that nice storm out moment, which kind of just sort of accents the fight with the this is not over. And as you said, Dean claims to be going to get a drink. But next time we really see Dean is breaking into Angela's place where he's eventually caught by her roommate. I just had a realization that he's never lied to Sam before about going out to do work on his own, which he does multiple times this episode, which means he probably did get a drink to cool down from the fight, which means he's potentially doing detective work a little on the tipsy side. So again, like this becomes a whole thing about Dean drinking on the job. Like, so that I think that's why, like, I assumed that he went, that he did follow through with his, you know, intention to go get a drink. 
because it's it becomes such an important plot point for Dean that I never really questioned it. But I, I see why you would question it, and I, I understand the implications of all of the questions afterwards. Yeah, and even just to go back and look a little bit at the way that entire interaction went down, I mean, as far as breaking into people's homes go, Dean's kind of an expert, not realizing there's a roommate who's let alone home, seems really sloppy work. It seems like a mistake someone who's had a few drinks might make. It, it also seems like a mistake that someone who is grieving would make. I, I'm not saying that he's not doing this because he's not drunk or that he has been, hasn't been drinking, but I really do think, I think that what we're both pointing to is that his judgment is impaired at this point. And that maybe Sam has a point. Something we will get to down the line, but a very obvious sentiment of this episode is the idea of Sam doubting Dean, but also while doubting him is right in that Dean can be a little too intense sometimes. The next fight that we actually see them having, Dean says, I know how to do my job despite what you might think. And I want to dig into that because it's the tone that this is set on. It sort of makes it sound like, this was about trust all along. Like Sam needs to trust Dean. And that's very reminiscent of John. Like do as I say, not as I do. Is Dean really upset because he felt that Sam didn't trust him or his ability to hunt? Like how do you read that line? So from someone, Dean, who was so enamored and so had so much faith in John and saw himself lose that faith to now have the person who he considers to be the one who looks up to him starting to doubt him, I think is just putting pieces together in a puzzle that he doesn't want to solve. He is starting to see the side of Sam who is trying to be a little more independent, trying to take a little more control. And while I don't think he's against those things, he doesn't like the idea of being doubted. Yeah, but that's a problem, right? When you're a team. Oh, yeah. Right? <laughs> it's either you're a team or you're a hierarchy. It's not, it's, it can be both. Let's move on to when Dean confronts Angela's dad. Because again, like, I feel like that really speaks about what's happening with Dean. What, what was that about, do you think? Gee, do you think Dean could have issues with a father who doesn't obey the laws of the, you know, natural order of things and yeah, tries to God. play God in some sense? especially Ugh. after this whole God complex thing came crashing down around all of them. I think the very surface level of this is the idea of, uh, what is the word I'm looking for there? The um, projection. Yes. Uh, I think the general yes. theme here is he's projecting <laughs> on him. He's projecting on a father who has in his eyes risen his daughter from the grave and sees this as a very negative thing. Cause that's as far as he knows. And we know he's correct. It's what John did for him. But it also goes really hand in hand with the other point of the episode, which is a weird two-sided thing Sam kind of brings up, which is the Dean can jump to conclusions. I mean, yes, Dean is right a lot of the time. As we've seen, this entire episode kind of has been built around the fact that while Sam was doubting Dean because Dean was grieving and looking for excuses, he was actually dealing with a real case and he actually was right about all these things. And up to this point has basically been you know, tens across the board. And this is the first time he has really made a mistake in this case. And it is very clear why he would jump to the conclusions he did. Yeah, you know what? You're totally right. And again, like it 
sort of brings the spotlight back to the whole like impaired judgment thing. Like he is blinded by his grief, by his anger, by his own emotions in this particular situation. Like you said, like this is very clearly a case of projection in my opinion, in my non-expert opinion. But I think, so it also shows us pretty clearly where Dean stands in terms of like deals to bring back loved ones at this moment in the series. And we're going to need to remember this. As I said, like, I think that he truly feels like immensely guilty, you know, like his dad died so that he wouldn't die. So he's internalizing it by saying things like, what you brought back isn't your daughter. Like maybe he sees himself as like soiled somehow. So maybe he actually feels shame. Like his dad didn't really save him. He saved the version of his son that he wanted to see. The version of Dean that's a facade, like his closeted self. It must be so hard for Dean to accept his bisexuality when his dad, like who we don't think would like have easily accepted him fully had he known about his bisexuality, basically died so that he could live. Like, I just feel like it adds a whole layer of shame to this whole situation. And you add to that, we've already clearly discussed the parentification of Dean. You now leave Dean alone with Sam. There's no longer even the like shadow of a possibility that John will step in and be dad again. He now is alone with Sam. They are the only two left. There is no other default. He is now the default. I think for as much as we've discussed, or at least that I've very heavily theorized that Dean has lost faith in John. I mean, when someone passes, you kind of remember the best version of them. And unfortunately for Dean, I think when it comes to filling the role that John has left, John literally left his space open and said, it's yours now. He doesn't feel worthy to fill that space. And I think you add to that the fact that he doesn't believe he should be alive despite all of that, like on top of all of this. I think just the combination of imposter syndrome, of just being forced to be a parent again, being uh, feeling abandoned. I mean, there's just so many things to balance that the fact that he can even be half the man he is, is bloody impressive. Dean. Dean, you poor, poor baby. I know. <laughs> I just want to hug him. And, uh, okay, so then Sam calls him out on this behavior. You know, he says, like, that that phrase that stays with me, you're lucky that this turned out to be a real case or you would have found something else to kill. That's really ominous. Like, what else would he have killed? You know? And... Again, here we have this label of killer for Dean with the implication that he uses hunting or even killing as a coping mechanism. So I did not read that far into it, but now that you say it, I am like, oh, crap. I know, and it doesn't I... stop there. <laughs> oh. Like for me, so again, without the future knowledge that you have, for me, what this scene read as was very much a tie, or a, sorry, a callback to his encounter with the vampire in the previous episode with the uh, very bloody uh, decapitation. I think Sam's view of Dean in that moment as this, and as much as he's corrected in, we saw that he obviously made the right choice at the end of Bloodlust, there is that part of Dean that just sort of seems a little bit too comfortable with killing. Not like enjoying it, not I, I wouldn't go so far as say it's something that like, you know, helps him relax or calms him down or gets him to cope, but that he can do it without a second thought if he knows he's right. And I think the fear here is that he will get to a point or 
could get to a point where he is so convinced of something, then rather than going with the, we don't know for sure, let's do the research, let's make sure, that he would just turn, pull the trigger and go, too bad. And as I'm saying this, my mind goes back to skin. You know, we have that moment. I, I, I legitimately cannot recall whether it's Sam or Dean. I think it's, yeah, it's Dean because it's the first time Sam goes, oh, you're not my brother. What happened to Dean? And then pulls the trigger, pulls the gun out, but can't pull the trigger. I almost imagine Sam picturing that scene in reverse now and thinking, yeah, Dean would have pulled the trigger. Dean would be so convinced he was right that he would pull the trigger on something he thought wasn't me. Whereas the Sam answer is, I can't take that risk. I need to know for sure. It would probably be a situation where like you're, you're very, you have a lot of like adrenaline pumping through your system, right? And so it's kind of a way, if you have listened to Prince Harry's latest interview, which I absolutely recommend that you go listen to because it's, it explains trauma and like complex trauma from a point of lived experience that I had never heard. Uh, frankly, like, and, and I think that this applies to Dean because Dean will always find situations, find ways to put himself in situations where there's a lot of adrenaline going on and that's his way of not having to sit with his thoughts, not having to stop, not having to basically have to cope with what has happened to him. When I said that we weren't done, there's more in this moment because Dean actually replies like, I can take care of myself, thanks. And then Sam says, you're the only one who thinks you should have to. And oh my God, Drew, when I say that I see myself in Dean Winchester, this is what I mean. Like we've talked about some trauma responses on the show before, especially when it comes to John and like his, like how he needs to be hyperlogical in order to feel in control. Well, for Dean, this is it. This is hy- what, something that could be called hyperindependence. And it's basically thinking that you are the only person who can take care of yourself. And this is what it looks like because he just can't imagine wanting to reach out for help or being able to like, it's just, it doesn't compute in his brain. No, because asking for help requires a level of self, a level of confidence in the person you're asking for help, but also understanding that you are admitting you are not complete enough to complete whatever it is you're trying to do. Exactly. You got it right. Shall we move on to the last like brothers moment? I know we haven't actually talked about Angela, but I really want to talk about that in critical time personally. So let's talk about the final bro moment of the episode where Dean shares his feelings of guilt and shame with Sam. Like, you know, I was dead and I should have stayed dead. Now, this is the second time that Dean cheats death. We saw that happen in Faith and we saw it now Uh, in my time of dying. So there's like this compound effect that we were discussing earlier, right? So like it's his guilt about having survived in faith, then his shame about having survived in my time of dying, and then the grief of losing his dad, which is making him grieve for his mom, which then leads him to coping mechanisms like alcohol and hunting. Dean is going through a lot, (laughs) And Dean is someone who, as you pointed out, and I love the terminology you've used because it's one that I wouldn't have used myself, is a very hyper-independent character, a very hyper-independent person who 
does not feel like he can dump these things on someone else because he should be able to deal with them on his own. And this is his first step into saying, hey, Sam, you know what? I see what you are getting at. I am understanding the points you made this past hunt, and I'm ready to reflect on what that means. This is him finally breaking down and asking for help. Even if it isn't actually asking for help, it's just saying, I am understanding I can't do this alone, and I don't want to. I just want to mention something about Sam here, because like Sam is also grieving his dad. Sam is also feeling grief for his mom. Sam is still grieving Jessica. He mentions her in this episode. Sam is also going through a lot. And on top of that, he doesn't have much room to like process it the way that he would want, which is to talk about it. Like Because Dean is shutting him out. Because Dean is dealing with his own stuff and doesn't actually leave room for Sam to cope with his own stuff the way that he would need to. Sam needs someone who can support him emotionally, which Dean has never really been good at. But Sam also feels like he needs Dean to open up to start that process. So I think there's a part of Sam that sees this as a a net win, even if he does understand what you've just said, which is that he doesn't have someone to support his emotions and to support his grieving and, you know, coming to terms with things. He now has a brother who is willing to at least open that door, which means it may be able to go both ways. You're so full of hope. (laughs) (laughs) I'm trying to remember my resolution. (laughs) (laughs) And I don't think that Sam is so much looking for emotional support as he's just looking for being able to talk about his feelings. You know what I mean? Like just being able, and, and and I understand that like it is emotional support in its own way, but it's not like he's asking Dean to parent him. He's asking Dean to just listen. He's not asking him to fix. He's not asking him for any, he just needs like a moment of catharsis where he can just like speak with no end goal. And that is so, so important. Yeah, that is incredibly important for people who are going through any kind of challenge. Just to be able to talk to somebody who is just there to listen. That's all Sam needs. And I think what almost hurts me the most in this scene, the thing that kind of sticks with me the most, is the fact that at the end of all of this, we have a moment where Dean basically gives Sam what he wants of you want me to open up to you and talk to you and discuss my feelings, not with the express goal of fixing them, but then Dean has to go and add that last freaking line. What could you possibly say to make it all right? That's the whole thing that shows you like how Dean feels about any kind of, of emotional problem. He feels like he needs to fix it. Not even that. He feels like it has to have a solution. It, yes, absolutely. I think it's a little different. I think it's a little different, but I think it's, it bears saying. Yeah, no, you're right. It, it, like, he feels like there, there must be a solution to this problem. And sometimes there just isn't. But you're right. He's just not in a headspace to realize that sometimes you just need to talk. And I just think that, like, it's so unfair to Sam, who up to that point... I don't think it's visually apparent, but I feel like I've been in that position where, like, you're getting what you want. The thing you've wanted is coming to fruition. And then you're, like, right at the peak. And then it's like, eh, never mind. And that's the thing. Like, as much as this episode is Dean-centric, I think 
I think there's something very meta about Dean making the situation about himself, right? And I say this as someone who loves Dean and thinks that he can do no wrong, but I think I think this is wrong of him. <laughs> but I think also it shows a lot in you as a Dean fan that you can see his flaws and understand them and at least reflect on them. Yeah, for sure. I mean, that's the whole point of fiction, right? To be able to think about like how this would manifest in real life and to kind of like practice empathy and practice like criticism, practice all of those things safely because I'm not going to hurt Dean's feelings, you know, by saying this. I'm I'm there are no repercussions. This this is an actual safe space for us to to practice those things that actually do happen in real life. Are we ready to move into critical time? I think we are. Okay, before we get started in critical time, because we both have a lot to say, let's begin. Who was our writer? So our writer for this episode was Ryel Tucker. Do you do you remember what she wrote? Not even a little bit, no. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so bad with this kind of stuff. I apologize. So Ryle Tucker wrote basically the same episodes that uh, Sarah Gamble had written because they were writing together as a team. This is interesting to see them writing separately because we can start we can start looking back and seeing like, oh, so this is how they are together and this is how they are when they're separate. So there you go. So the writer, Ryle Tucker, directed by Kim Manners. So again, we have some beautiful videography. One tiny thing that we discussed at the top of the episode, the title, Children Shouldn't Play With Dead Things, is actually a 1972 horror film. Would you like like me to read you the synopsis? Please. Six friends in a theatrical troupe dig up a corpse on an abandoned island to use in a mock satanic rite. It backfires with deadly consequences. Dum dum dum. Now, just so that you're aware, it's rated at about 40% on Rotten Tomatoes. So maybe don't rush to go watch it. But if you're into that sort of thing, then by all means. Here's my logic. Rotten Tomatoes, anything over an 80, I will trust is a good movie I may or may not watch. But when something sounds terrible and has like a 7 or like an 8, I need to see that crap. <laughs> 40, ugh, it'll be bad, but it won't be terrible. And that's not worth wasting my time on. So I think I might skip this one. Unless a listener really thinks I should watch it, let me know. So did you want to start maybe with the stuff that you wanted to talk about? Yeah. So this is my biggest nitpick with this episode, and it is in purely the writing because I feel like they are trying to do too much at once. And this is the most notable in Sam's Sam's feelings towards Dean because he's playing two sides of the field. There is the... Uh, how did I word this? One second. Sorry, I'm having a moment. I'm like too angry. <laughs> Oh my god, it's so rare that we get you angry. Oh my god, are you starting to get angry about Supernatural? <gasps> I think I'm getting we can angry bond over this. Okay, in this case, Sam has these two like combating visions of Dean in this episode. One is he's clearly emotional and making things up, and all of this is a big charade to hide your emotions from me. But then there's also the side of Sam thinking he's always right. And the side of Sam that is actually right in this episode. It's like You need to pick a lane and stay in it. Either Sam is right, and there is a bigger arc here of Dean having to learn that Sam is right and that he has to question things. Or Sam's not always right, and Sam needs to learn to trust in Dean, even when Dean is being emotional. You can't have both. Okay, Drew, so sit down. <laughs> so... Again, I, it's really hard to tell if this was intentional or not, but 
again, looking back, this looks like they are basically setting up season four. In season four, there, the way that I would describe it to somebody who hasn't seen it is like there are two storylines or there are two versions of the same storyline. And as a viewer, you are asked to pick which one you believe. And it really looks like what we're seeing right now. Like, do you think that, so in this, in this episode, for example, like, do you think that Sam was right to doubt him or do you think that Dean was right and that he knows how to do his job? The reality is that it's a little bit of column A and a little bit of column B. Again, this is a sibling relationship. And so like, it's either I'm right or you're right, but it's never both. Like, you know how we tend to, to look at sibling relationships? Like, it's very, I see your point. It, I think the reason why it didn't shock me so much is because we get so much of that in season four. Like, this might be a little tough for you. <laughs> Thank you for letting me know. I think knowing that will only make it easier to swallow said pill because at least now I'm expecting it. I'm wondering, and again, like it's hard to judge intent just based on this. Like, I don't, I haven't read that much about this episode, like the behind the scenes or anything, but were they trying to, to kind of like mix us up? What, like, was it, was the goal to try to like sow confusion amongst the viewers to like have them pick a side, have them pick a brother? I don't know. Because if that was the case, then I feel like they've achieved that really well. I feel like, especially first time watchers would be watching this, this episode and like clearly pick one or the other, depending on their own life experiences. No, and I, I think I'm going to say generally my, my gut check says no, because I feel like Every time they bring the point up, this this Sam versus Dean moment, we as the viewer have more information and know that Dean is right. That's very accurate. The, the whole episode would have played so differently had we not known about this or if it had been kept as a reveal. Yeah, that's so true. That's so true. Oh, my God. That was again. That was my biggest. I just needed to get that out there. But we have a lot more critical thoughts on this episode, I know. So what I would like to talk about in this episode in terms of critical time is the nice guy trope. Ooh, sorry, I threw up my mouth. Ugh, sorry, continue. <laughs> okay. So like, if you had to explain the nice guy trope, like, how would you explain it? So to me, the nice guy trope, it also kind of is, it's the, it's the classic friend-zoned character. This is usually a male character. There have been female characters who've done this as well, and I, there are examples, I can even think of some. But generally, it's a male character put into a friendship position of a female character. Again, usual pronouns here. There are always exceptions, and I love hearing when they happen. But it is the put into a friend zone. They are the shoulder to cry on. They are the best friend. They are the support system to this other character. And there is, an, whether it is blatant or very well hidden, there is usually a longing and a... The, the, the worst part, a feeling of they deserve to be with that person because they're the nice guy. There's a feeling of entitlement there. And who better to exemplify this trope than Xander Harris from Buffy the Vampire Slayer? I mean, that's the example I had in mind the whole time I was describing this. And yeah, Xander is. And again, I use nice guys very air quoted here is a nice guy. He is super into Buffy. And even when he gets into other relationships, there's always kind of that lingering, but what if with Buffy, which just poisons his other relationships. And 
even when they get to the point where it is very clear it's never going to work between them, he then kind of takes on a, like, protective older brother feel, but not in a way that was ever asked for, in an assertive, like, I'm going to protect her because she's precious to me. Well, and frankly, like, if we're being really honest, um, the only things that he's truly, quote-unquote, protecting her from are men. Like, he does not give her agency to decide who or which men she's bringing into her life. So I, I don't want to go too deep into the Xander Harris narrative, but I feel like this is basically what everybody or what most people would be familiar with because it's just so in your face. And in this episode, I feel like, so obviously Neil is the nice guy in this case. He's like such a good friend. He brought her chocolate. He had like Kleenex for her to, to be able to cry. He was there to listen, protected her from her boyfriend when he wanted to come in and see her. It just makes my blood boil. So like, okay, so let's start from the beginning here. First of all, I want to make a parallel between Angela and Gordon's sister, who is unnamed, by the way. We never find out her, her name. Angela was not raised from the dead of her own accord, and she says that at the end of the episode. Neil did this without her consent, just like Gordon's sister was probably turned into a vampire without her consent. Gordon's sister is used as a plot device to villainize Gordon, a black man, whereas Angela is used as a plot device to humanize Neil, a white man who fits the nice guy trope. You know, like, oh, he was just so in love with her. <gasps> like, there is that moment uh, towards the end of the episode where he's clearly trying to protect her and also starts to realize he's a little afraid of her, tries to run away from, from Angela, to which Angela then realizes, oh, you don't love me, are you running away from me, and snaps his neck. I'm not sure if it's just me or if it was intentional, but I was like, like, yeah, come up and... Like, the show, like, Supernatural as a whole has a really good air of giving the audience the vengeance it feels it deserves in characters. You know, uh, in Faith, when the Reaper turns around and kills um, the pastor's wife, or pretty much any time a human character the brothers would not think to harm is hurt, killed, disappeared, or whatever the ha happenstance of the day is by the monster of the week that is their fault. We as an audience, I think, are supposed to be like, you know what, yeah, they deserve that. And I feel like even here, they acknowledge that with Neil. I am going to gently push back against that because I feel like Angela is also used as like, you know, the crazy ex-girlfriend trope where it's like, she's so crazy. She is, you know, hell hath no fury. They mentioned that in the episode too. You know, she won't stop until they're all dead. It's bothering me because, again, like, you're using this character who never... Like, this person, Angela, who by all descriptors that we have of her before her death was probably, like, the sweetest thing ever who would never have actually hurt anybody. You're making her do all of these things. And for what? I think there was some implied storytelling. I'm not trying to make excuses. I think there are still problems with this, which is why there is that moment, like I said, where she does kill Neil that I feel is there to appease the audience because it really, he is truly the evil of this episode. You know, she is a byproduct of his greed and lust. 
and unfortunately has to suffer because of it. Ultimately, he is the big bad, sort of like, as I used before in Faith, the big bad wasn't the Reaper, it did the killing, but not of its own volition. Angela is essentially being treated like a tool, which is a whole other bucket of problems in female characters. Neil is ultimately the big bad in this episode, and he gets, air quotes, what is coming to him. I'm looking at our document of notes, and I'm looking at my Crossroads deal, and I'm now, like, reconsidering it, because I think my issue here is they needed to go more into what is this thing? What is our monster of the week? Because had we at least gotten to a conversation of, oh, it's not Angela. It's it's her body, and it's pretending to be her, but this is an evil spirit you brought back from the underworld. Like, just give us the right to go. Angela is not present. So you are making the exact point that I was about to make, that what you're reading into this, that that Neil is the big bad of the episode, I agree with. I think we can all agree on that. But it's not actually stated anywhere. We are reading into this, and I'm wondering if we're not ascribing things to it, because the episode never even alluded to that. Like, what we are seeing is from our own perspective and our own experience, what the story... Like the textual story that this episode is saying, and you can read it even in the synopsis, actually. I pulled it up because it really bothered me. Dean and Sam investigate the death of a college student who has come back from the dead seeking revenge on those who mistreated her while she was alive. Who is the villain, the intended villain here? She comes back from the grave like she decided, I would like to be not dead anymore. I mentioned that for me, it's the lack of agency that absolutely angers me here. Angela didn't choose not to follow the Reaper. The choice to come back, so to speak, was made for her. She was forced into this position. And the synopsis that we're reading here, like, mentions in no way that she didn't just come back, she was brought back. And that reminds me of some very real life moments where we see misogyny in the media and in our society. Think about how news outlets discuss violence against women. You know, when you read headlines about it, it's never like man kills his wife or man uh, hurts girlfriend. No, no, no. It's woman dead after domestic incident. Oh, I'm, oh, did she... Did she just drop dead? Is that what happened? And then you read the article to find out that it was actually a woman killed by her ex-boyfriend. A lot of the time, there's also a lot of history with that, with where like she tried to get a restraining order, she tried to go to police, she tried to do this, he had threatened her before. Like those things, we act, sorry, I'm getting really angry. We act as if those acts of pure hatred and violence against women are just like things that happen out of the blue and things that are like, unavoidable and normal. It is none of those things. Like, and I think what really angers me about this episode is that it furthers this mentality. This happened to her. She was brought, she was brought back. Look at the passive in the sentence. It was Neil who brought her back. Like you said, out of like pure greed and lust and selfishness. Why aren't we talking about that? Why isn't the episode about that? The episode's not about that. We're making it about that through our own and analysis and interpretation, which is really important. I don't want to give this episode too much credit. No, and I think you're completely right. Like, the point I was trying to make was very much just a matter of, like, a character is killed, and I think the audience as a whole hopefully understands that he deserved it and shouldn't feel bad for him, and they don't play it that way. But you're right. There are people out there who look at this episode and go, oh, 
poor Neil got killed. He was just trying to be good, and that person needs a smack in the teeth. Absolutely. But you know what? There are a lot of people who think that. And because it's not stated textually in the episode, they feel vindicated because they could easily go back into the episode and say, oh, but look, this is what he said. These were his motivations. You know, like it doesn't actually tell the story explicitly that it seems to be telling at a deeper level. And that becomes so problematic later on with their with their the way that they represent queer people. Like and that and probably that's why I'm so angry about this because this is again like something that keeps coming back. Like supernatural has this way of leaving of of having such a deeper level and yet also such a shallow level for very specific audiences. And I think that it's a total lack of courage not to go into that deeper level more explicitly. And I think that's something that most shows in this generation suffer from is the whether whether it's very explicit or very minor, a creative mind has a very specific narrative they'd like to get across. These deeper conversations, these deeper meanings, these heavier tones, but are not given the right to do so or are shunned by the studios or the execs and have to then do these lighter, fluffier versions of it. And in doing so, you're always going to have a shadow of what you originally wanted there. And that's why we're seeing shows today, both from the more mature point of view to even kids shows that are able to do so much more because that stigma has, for the most part, with a lot of stations and studios, been stripped away. And services that allow for creators to really do what they want to do and give them kind of that blank check and just make your dream project have allowed us to see so many better pieces of media recently. Not to say Supernatural is not good media. It is, for all intent and purpose, what could have been great media, but was muffled by this corporate level where things had to be hidden. And again... Not to excuse this episode, it has its flaws. Clearly, it's problematic and clearly has riled us both up in a very specific way. But as we both said, we've gleaned some very interesting tidbits from it. And those are only there, even if we're only digging for them, they have to be there to dig for. You're right. You're right. I think I just, I think I want us to be careful because those things that we're saying, I, I, I wonder how much of it would have been seen by the general audience back in 2006. Because I know, I know that I wouldn't have seen it, but that's the thing. We were in the prime demographic. The lesson that I would have learned from this is that women are crazy and women will kill you if you wrong them. That's what I would have gotten as a message. And I think that that is a problem and that only now 15 years later going back to it i'm able to say oh i can read this into this episode to almost make the joke of we are living through a pandemic and everyone and their mother is starting a podcast i and this specific format of podcast the watch a show or read a book or watch a movie and discuss it i think is so prominent right now because of this exact scenario. We have this media that was created in a time where it could not be what it was meant to be. The ghost of what it was meant to be still lingers. And by going back with a newer perspective, looking at, as we do in the critical side of things, the what clearly happened, went wrong, and what could have been, can we learn and grow from it 
and share that with people who choose to listen along. Mm-hmm. Shall we move into our uh, voicemail? So this week we got, actually this is an old message from our Instagram account that I missed. So I'm so sorry if there are times where I don't get back to you immediately. It's honestly just because I missed it. I haven't seen it. Like nudge me if you'd like a response from me. I I sincerely apologize for that. Like don't feel awkward about it. I'm telling you, (laughs) like nudge us again. So this is a message from a left door knocker who has already sent us a message in season one. So she sent us another one. And so she writes, regarding provenance and the appearance of the Impala. So mentioning that it looked dirty and that's completely out of character for baby. It got me thinking about how later in the season, John is angry at Sam and takes it out on Dean with a comment about how he's not taking care of the car and it visibly shames him. I think baby becomes Dean's after John's death and he has to completely rebuild it. And even then he's really angry and working through a lot of trauma. Do you want to respond first? Yes. I feel like this is one of those moments where, like, I just we are, like, so simpatico right now. This is exactly what I was saying. The rebuilding of the Impala is so symbolic of his, it becoming his. It's no longer a, this is John's, take care of it. This is his. He is fully the owner of it. He has started from scratch and built up his own. And I just think that goes so far into the way that he will continue to treat this car. And we have to look at it as not treating it as an item that was bestowed upon him by a character he saw as being greater than others. He sees this as his pride, his joy, his passion. He's able to share this beautiful car with the world. And this beautiful car is his partner. Aww, baby. 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 Okay, so first of all, thank you so much for your message, Left Door Knocker. Honestly, like this is something that we've we've talked about and it was it's so nice to kind of see that the conversations are still going about that. Like I I actually love that. I think it's really cool. And yeah, like there's a clear link in later seasons also about Dean's mental headspace and the cleanliness of the car. And so that's why it's really important to kind of like track those. They're not always aligned. Like in this episode, for example, she was tip top. But then again, Dean was presenting himself as being tip top. You're absolutely right. Dean was presenting himself as going, ooh, I like that. I like the idea of the appearance of the Impala reflecting the appearance of Dean, not necessarily his me- his actual mental state, but how he wants to be perceived by the world. Ooh, I like that. Oh, like, come on. Like, I'm looking at you specifically, Mary. Like, this is a little calling you out moment. I know because it's something I have done. My wife has done it. I've heard you admit to doing. You will have those days where you're not feeling 100% there. And the way you get around that is by cleaning your house and making things look better and prettier. I'm so called out. (laughs) And I will join you. The number of I've had a shit night. I'm not doing good. I'm just going to go deal with the damn dishes. Yep. 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 But this is not my psychotherapy (laughs) session, right? Yep. I mean, I have thoughts about that, about Dean and his relationship to cleanliness. And we will get to those because I really think that there's something there. I think with all that, we can now jump ourselves into the crossroads. 
I am choosing to go first for Crossroads. <laughs> okay, I think it's wise. Because I want to spend more time on yours and mine. I'm like looking at my notes and I'm like, eh. Because at the end of the day, my Crossroads deal, as broad as I can make this while getting as much out of it as I can, is I would cut this episode in half content-wise. I feel like every part of this episode was trying to do something good I'm being very like benefit of the doubt you had a good intention but this is like all and it's one writer so it's not the case but it's like too many cooks in the kitchen as I've discussed before Sam has his either he's right about Dean and Dean needs to figure things out or Sam is thinks he's always right and he isn't and Dean is actually right in coping properly pick a lane and choose it our creature of the week the zombie either make it all about a zombie and ditch the whole nice guy you know and ex-boyfriend and really make it about a thing coming back from the dead get into the lore either make it Angela and make it a worthwhile story for her or make it not Angela and why it works the way it does like again I could sit here and write fake synopsis forever and make this better and I'm not going to even just in the way they deal with her father pick a lane either he's you know they paint him as the bad guy then clearly he's not like pretty much every story plot point in this episode had another plot point that basically acted as a counter to it pick one of each rewrite the episode from those points i'm not gonna sit here and do it for you and you may have had a better episode at least from a episode standpoint again from a story standpoint we learned a lot we gleamed a lot we discussed a lot i feel like there's a lot of growth that happens and I feel like that is true with every episode, no matter how bad. But from a, like, critical, like, story and writing and plot, ugh. And I don't know what else you could do. Giving things up, I ask you to take away half the episode. I think it's a pretty fair deal. Uh, well, I would actually get rid of the entire episode, frankly. <laughs> Sorry. So you would legitimately just say, screw this episode? Screw this episode. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> like, remove it, you know? Like, I'd be okay with a 21-episode season if it meant not having to watch this episode ever again. <laughs> like, you said that there would be things to discuss, but I will not be taking any questions. Like, <laughs> <laughs> No, I think by discuss, I meant just sort of pile on top what you're saying and go like, yeah, I get it. I mean, I liked, so that's the thing. The What I liked about it was like the brother's dynamic. And that's really what I focused on in, in story time. But everything else was just, honestly, it was upsetting. It was really upsetting to watch. And so I don't, I don't feel like, I don't see why I would have to like to submit myself to that. I don't, nope, nope. Just scrap it, burn it down. That's it. You've been listening to Carrying Wayward, a supernatural podcast produced by Rochelle Castellano, hosted by Mary Vigahu, and myself, Drew Shulman. This week, we'd like to thank Left Door Knocker for her message. Help us keep the conversation going. You can send us a voice recording at carryingwayward at gmail.com and follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok, and now YouTube using at carryingwayward. Make sure to leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. We'd love to grow our community more. Until next week. Carry on our wayward friends. Oops, I'm going to sneeze. I'm going to, hold on, I'm going to sneeze. (laughs) I, I have no control over it. Oh, no.